South Sudan in focus on the voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan this Thursday, October 20, 2022. Authorities in Warap State say 18 people were killed during a cattle raid. The clashes happened on Tuesday morning in a place called Penyan Beach. Bite side was caused by the attackers who prepared themselves from Rangian side and attacked Penyan Beach. And some South Sudanese analysts say the South Sudan government should involve other actors to resolve the conflict in Upper Nile State. As South Sudan's uh, national government works on the issues of insecurity at the local level throughout the country, citizens become happy to hear that their government is interested in their welfare. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Authorities in Tonch East County of South Sudan's Warap State say at least 18 people were killed and dozens wounded in a cattle raid-related attack. The commissioner of Tonch East County says armed raiders attacked the Panbeg cattle camp, killing cattle keepers. For VOA News, William Sande Mabor reports from the Lake State capital, Rumbek. Tony East County Commissioner John Denkook says armed raiders suspected of coming from Wanjang community in Tony East County attack a cattle camp owned by the Baich, Ador, Pagor, and Jalwao communities in Woolit area of Tony East County for the past two days. He says 16 people died on the spot and two others succumbed to gunshot wounds on Thursday morning. The clashes happened on Tuesday morning in a place called Penyan Beach. Bite side was caused by the attackers who prepared themselves from Rangian side and attacked Penyan Beach. The fight from both sides have lost more than 15 uh, people have died. In the morning again, Cook says the attackers also stole a known number of cattle. He says authorities despite government security forces to Panyan Beach cattle camp to restore calm to the area. Warabe State Information Minister William Walkwall condemned the renewed fighting in Tony East after about a year of relative peaceful coexistence between the communities there. He says Governor Lewa Yeng is taking charge of the situation. Since it has renewed unexpectedly, it is condemned strongest time possible. Yoralena Yenya Leo is elite in any person that is taking a law by his hand. So imagine the families who have actually lost their loved ones to remain calm and the government will take parallel measures to bring people to book. Kolak pressed the government's condolences to the families who lost their loved ones in the violence. He says security forces in the wounded area have apprehended 14 people from both sides. The arrested delegate people who have involved are now being arrested under the detention of the government now. There are, there are seven, so both sides. We may not end up within the number of the people that have been detained. The real uh, criminals who survived the death are not yet caught. And I'm looking after exactly the very people. And I'm on the way to the area today. Everything will make sure to be. The situation will be standby. 
Cook is urging people in Tony East to remain calm and for those in the diaspora to convince their loved ones at home to remain calm. He also called on the people of Warabi State to refrain from inciting their communities on social media. I have to recall the sun and outside of Tony East in and outside the country. Uh, our country for the past has been peaceful for more than almost a year now. And this incident that just happened was caused by a ten criminal who don't want physical coexistence of the people. This is a call from the authority, the commission of the area, that we need to unite ourselves and refrain from pushing the conflict over the Facebook and other social media. We call for unity so that our people can live compared to the life they, they were before the conflict. Both County Commissioner Cook and Warabi State Information Minister Call are blaming individuals, criminals, whom they say do not want peace in Tony East. Call also warned state residents against inciting violence on social media, warning that those who do could find themselves facing criminal action in the cyber crimes court recently launched in Juba. Amazing, particularly those who are actually putting some propaganda on social media, to be very mindful because they have had recently that the court has been formed to investigate anybody who is found integrating or causing any havoc to the peace and tranquility of the community should be dealt through rule of law by this criminal court. Cook says he does not understand how civilians involved in the cattle raid obtained their weapons since Warab authorities carried out disarmament exercise in Tony East earlier this year. For VOA News, I am William Sande Mabur, reporting in Rumbeg, Lake State. Some analysts are welcoming a decision by President Salva Kiir to intervene and resolve the conflict in Upper Nile State. At least 25 people were reportedly killed in the recent fighting between armed opposition factions of the SPLA in opposition. A professor of anthropology at Syracuse University in the U.S. state of New York and a policy analyst with the Juba-based Institute of Social Policy and Research say the presidency should involve other actors to resolve the conflict. For VOA News, Dengai Deng reports from Bor. At least 25 people were reportedly killed in recent fighting between armed opposition factions of the SPLA in opposition who are said to have mobilized civilians to fight for their sides. After Monday's extraordinary cabinet meeting, Information Minister Michael McQuay described the conflict in Upper Nile State as complex and that it should be handled by the presidency. Jok Madud Jok, professor of anthropology at Syracuse University in the U.S. state of New York, says the decision by the national government to get involved more directly at the level of the presidency in Upper Nile was a great move and is unprecedented. As South Sudan's uh, national government works on the issues of insecurity at the local level throughout the country, citizens become happy to hear that their government is interested in their welfare. The announcement on Monday following uh, the cabinet extraordinary meeting that the cabinet has decided to be involved more directly at the level of the presidency in the ever-growing 
and deadly conflicts in Upper Nile region was well received. While Jog praised the government's decision to transfer the Upper Nile conflict to the presidency, he remains skeptical because some of the fighting between SPLM, AIO, breakaway factions of Kidguang and Agwelek in the area which the government now wants to resolve was initially created by the government. Jog says that there are elements within the security services cabinet and the presidency who find it more beneficial to them personally to see the conflict continue rather than resolve it. Take for example the fight last week between uh, the group called Kidguang under Gadwech Dual and a group called Agualak, a predominantly Shuluk militia under Olun Tabo. Uh, this fight was essentially stoked by security elements within Juba as a way to wedge a rift between the two in order to weaken them. The two factions, Kidguang and Agualak, were once part of SPLM-IO and were united. They then broke away from IO as a united force and sign a separate agreement with SPLM in government in order to join the peace deal. They were given promises of all kinds. But suddenly they disagreed and Gadwech and Olun started fighting each other for the most part because Juba tried to weaken both of them by embarking on a project of attempting to lure Gadwech to Juba with promises of jobs, integration of his forces and money, which didn't materialize in the end. Jok says South Sudanese are tired of their leaders not being transparent about what they have decided to do on their own, noting the presidency has remained silent during several recent deadly incidents. The problem that we have not just as analysts, but as ordinary citizens of South Sudan, is that many of these high-profile announcements made by the cabinet have always ended up being just that, high-profile statements, hollow and empty of policy commitments. I hope that this is not the case this time around. Baboya James Adimon, a policy analyst with the Institute of Social Policy and Research in Juba, says top leaders are to blame for lives lost in Upper Nile because they initially refused to intervene and end the fighting. The presidency has nothing to do with this process for now because there's already structures under the peace agreement that are supposed to be dealing with issues to do with the security and insecurity. At least there's, uh, you know, the Minister of Defense, they're supposed to deploy, you know, troops to that area and, 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 and secure the area because then, because there's a, there's a unified uh, forces that are mandated by the peace agreement to do that. Edimon says the presidency should revive the Khartoum agreements with the Kidguang and Agwelek factions and this time involve other peace partners in order to realize the lasting peace in the country. Last week, Apanali State Governor Budok Ayang said at least 25 people were killed in fighting after an armed militia. A group of young men suspected of coming from neighboring Jonglei State's Fangak County invaded Upper Nile. 
For VOA News, I am Dengai Deng in Bor. From Jungle State, we move to Kenya, where the Kenyan government wants to renegotiate a multi-billion dollar loan from China that was used to build a major railway. The country's incoming transport minister told lawmakers that Kenya is up to date on its payment but cannot continue with the current 20-year schedule. Muhammad Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Kenya's transport minister, designate said the country cannot continue to pay Chinese loans under the current terms. Answering questions from a parliamentary committee, Kipchumba Murkomen said the country will have to ask for an extended period to pay, especially in regard to the loans used to build what is known as the Standard Gauge Railway. So there was a strategic decision that was made at that time that we take, we invest in the infrastructure, we should be willing, led by the president, to renegotiate the loan period. If we manage to move the loan period, even to 50 years. Kenya borrowed $5 billion to build the railway line from the port of Mombasa to the city of Naivasha, west of Nairobi. The railway was open for business in 2017, and the government forced businesses to transport goods by rail to help repay the loan. The railway, however, has lost money. It becomes impossible to be able to pay that loan by revenue that comes from the railways. And even in 50 years, it will never break even if you load the loans to the the railway. Kenya's previous government is accused of overborrowing to finance development projects, which has also increased corruption. China also financed a 27-kilometer expressway in Nairobi, costing $734 million. Most of Kenya's infrastructure deal with China has been shrouded in secrecy. The agreement that led to the newly built railways has remained secret despite a court order demanding it to be made public. Murkomen said he should ask for the agreement and share with parliament. Kenyan economist Gerishon Ikiara says the misuse of money and corruption are to blame for the country's debt problems. We are not allowing uh, that the money that is borrowed should be strictly used for the projects. So that, uh, but sometimes in Kenya there is a lot of corruption in in the project because if we are able to utilize the money according to uh, that it is properly evaluated. There is a competitive bending for the projects. Uh, I think we would have covered many, many more kilometers. But uh, that mistake has been made and a uh, lot of corruption. And it was affecting the, the full cost of uh, projects in the country. Ikiara also says Kenya's generally good relations with China may lead to a more sustainable debt payment program. Friendly countries always uh, negotiate. Uh, if they have, because uh, sometimes China may also have other issues or it might have borrowed itself. So it is also looking at its economy and is asking what is our ability to adjust uh, to the terms that the Kenya wants. So that's why friendly relations and all that is very important. China accounts for one-third of Kenya's external debt. The new Kenyan government under President William Ruto has said it will reduce reliance on foreign loans and borrow more in the domestic market. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi.
listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, we take a closer look at what it takes to seek asylum in Southern Africa. That story is coming up after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today... What do you do on the weekends? Over the weekend, uh, uh, we I happen to read my books, the novels, and uh, sometimes I go for my leisure time, play pool tables, and uh, watch uh, football because I'm a fan of Arsenal. Weekends, most of the time I listen to music, I go to the beach, I hang out with my friends. Sometimes I go to the clubs, but mostly, most of my time I'm always with my mom. It is very good. Weekend is something where you can enjoy your life with either your wife, friends, girlfriends, your friends, and colleagues sometimes. So it can be in, in form of swimming, playing footballs, and watching football. I'm a great fan of football. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. The U.S. Africa Business Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is convening its first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists have been decided. And for the next two weeks, we'll bring you a look at each one. Today, we hear from David Njonjo from Kenya. His startup, Grow Agri, provides a platform to help small and mid-sized farmers to farm better and earn more. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is David Jonjo. I'm 38 years old. I'm the COO and co-founder at Grow Greek, and I am a proud Kenyan. We applied primarily because um, we met the criteria um, once we saw the announcement uh, coming out, and so this was an opportunity for us to spread our gospel, um, you know, to, to other markets and to other people to get, uh, you know, sort of recognition from, from, from others um, outside there in the market and people in other countries um, is a big achievement for ourselves. So it's something that we are proud of. Basically, Grow Greek uh, is an end-to-end solution providing farmers with logistical, financial, um, and market support. So we work with farmers from inception when they're starting. We train farmers. Um, we provide them with financing for, for all the inputs that they require. Um, we help monitor their farming process. We pro- we've created digital record-keeping tools um, where farmers are able to manage their farms um, and track how well they're performing. At the end of the farming cycle, then we help them also sell their produce um, at, for competitive prices. There's a huge gap 
um, across Africa in terms of, of, of food production and we, are, we, are, we haven't been able to feed our population. So by helping these farmers increase their production, then we're also helping to fill that gap and ensure there's enough food to go around for the population. We also have programs where we're also en enabling the youth, um, so where we work with experienced farmers and we match them with, with um, a, farm, a newbie, so to speak, farmers who are, who are setting up. And through learning from them and ha having that knowledge transfer, then we're able to sort of improve um, and create employment opportunities. So the first thing we will do when we win the competition um, will be to celebrate um, with, 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 with our farmers, um, with the people within the team that, that we've been really working hard um, to get up to this point. Um, and then use the resources that, that are going to be deployed um, uh, to us um, to expand our offering, um, to improve on our processes um, and get to a point where we're able to move the needle towards obtaining our vision of having over half a million uh, farmers by the end of 2025. Botswana is experiencing concern over an influx of asylum seekers who fled from countries where they had already been granted refugee status. Nearly 700 refugees have arrived from neighboring Zimbabwe, citing poor conditions at the refugee camp, while others have come from South Africa, driven out by xenophobic attacks. Mukondisi Dube reports from Gaboroni. Addressing journalists Tuesday, Botswana's Minister of Justice, Machana Shamukuni, said the country has seen the arrival of onward movement Islam seekers. He says Botswana expressed its concern over the issue at a recent executive meeting of the UN Refugee Agency in Geneva, Switzerland. These are asylum seekers that have been granted international protection elsewhere, but they still come to Busa to seek asylum again. Because once you are accorded international protection elsewhere, the expectation even in the international community is that, you know, you should stay there so that, you know, you are protected in your protection there. But when you proceed to another country and to seek protection again, when you were accorded you are accorded protection in another jurisdiction, then it, it becomes problematic. The majority of the 688 recent arrivals, originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, more recently lived at the Tongokara refugee camp in Zimbabwe. Shamukuni says others are Somalis who left South Africa due to xenophobic attacks. Uh, on the challenges here onward movement as to why they decide to leave camp areas where they are given international protection and they come to Botswana to seek asylum again. It, it talks to the conditions in some of the camps. Conditions in some of the camps, the issues like you know housing, the conditions and the status of you know housing, issues of education and, and uh, issues of access to health. Uh, these are the reasons that they stay. But also recall in South Africa there was that issue has xenophobia. That issue has xenophobia. It drove a lot of uh, them, particularly the Somalis. Adriano Nuvunga is director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Maputo, Mozambique. He says Botswana's peace and stability are magnets for fleeing refugees. And Botswana is one of those uh, victims due to its political stability and some possibilities of people to find uh, um, uh, opportunities, uh, survival, but also uh, the welcoming nature of the Botswana people. So uh, these nations will continue to suffer influx uh, of refugees because of, uh, the, uh, of the failed uh, governance uh, systems uh, uh, in our region which triggers conflicts, and conflicts 
um, uh, 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 trigger people to uh, seek refuge. So it's a vicious cycle of bad governance. Zimbabwean born Watson Chibi, who has spent nearly two decades as a refugee in Botswana, says Islam seekers are lured to the country due to prospects of a better life. Oh, pertaining the issue of uh, refugees from Somalia and DRC coming to Botswana, it's, 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 a, it's an issue that when I was also a refugee, was also worrisome. In, in Botswana, when you are from Somalia or you are from DRC, surely, surely resettlement is very easy. People are going for resettlement from those two countries. Due to its isolated location, Botswana's refugee population has never been high and is now down to 1,019 from more than 3,000 three years ago as the UN Refugee Agency scales down operations. The majority of refugees, mostly from Namibia and Zimbabwe, were repatriated over the last two years. Mkondisi Dube for VOA News, Haboroni. Is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. This is a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Hello, I'm VOA health correspondent Linor Modou. The World Health Organization and Africa Centers for Disease Control say we all can help fight the global pandemic by frequently washing our hands or using hand sanitizers. For more information on protecting yourself and others, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa CDC. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest on COVID-19. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. That's all we prepared for you this Thursday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this program, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with some actually traditional song from Eastern Equatorial State.
have been listening to some actually traditional song from Eastern Equatorial State. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Michael, Michael.